HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much once again for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And today we are going to be taking a trip all around the world of ag. I've got a jam-packed show for you. Uh, At the top of the hour, we're going to be chatting with Craig Watts. Uh, Craig is a poultry farmer who works with Purdue down in North Carolina. So we're going to be learning a little bit more about him and his operation and some work he did recently with Compassion in World Farming as part of their Better Chicken Initiative. Then in the second half of the show, we'll be getting on the line with Sam Filler. Sam is the Director of Industry Development. He works with uh, Governor Cuomo's office here in New York State as part of the Empire State Development Plan. And we're going to be talking a little bit about beer and breweries and an upcoming event that the Heritage Radio Network is a media partner for, uh, the 2015 Food and Enterprise. So more on that to come. So definitely stay tuned for the second half of the show. But without further ado, I want to welcome Craig on the line. Craig, it's so great to have you with us. Hey, good to be here. Uh, I, I, I've been anticipating this. So I know we talked about it some time back, but uh, here I am. We made it. We made it. It's really happening. Um, <laughs> so, so um, you know, Craig, you're, a pass, uh, you're in my path crossed in a couple of different ways right around the same time um, we were connected uh, via Twitter with a New York farmer. And then I also um, saw you, of course, in the Compassion and World Farming video that came out earlier, uh, or towards the end, I guess, uh, of 2014 as part of their Better Chicken campaign. But before we get into uh, into that, I want to give folks a little bit of history, because you have been for- farming poultry uh, birds for quite some time down in North Carolina. So why don't you give us a little sense of how you got into the business? Oh, uh, well, just real quick, we we always farmed. I mean, we're a multi-generational farm. We have a land grant from the King of England for for part of the farm, and I, actually I think it's right where the poultry houses sit. Um, 
my dad had a heart attack when I was a teenager, so we kind of got out of farming actively, but I stayed in it in a research capacity, and then I came I was traveling a lot, so when I came back and got to do some research work in North Carolina, I got the bug to stay back on the farm. Naturally, the farming economy in the early 90s wasn't very good. The chicken companies came in. I call it the courting phase. I looked at it as my lifeline, so that's kind of the history and how, you know, how I got into the business or why I got into the business. So can you tell us a little bit about that courting phase? I'm just curious, did they have... Um, you know, I would imagine maybe reps coming door to door talking about like, hey, you know, grow chickens for us and this is what it'll look like. Or were they competing with Tyson or another major uh, chicken producer? Or how did that kind of shake out on your end? Oh, no, there was no competition. I mean, they, they were, you know, poultry was new in our area. There may have been a few turkey farms around. And basically they put an ad in the paper and I think the way it read was we need a few smart birds to raise our birds and here's the number to call. And and I did, and the guy came out, and you know, he gave this little sales pitch. He gave these, uh, like, a, an income expense kind of projection thing, and numbers pulled out of uh, fantasy land. So, uh, what, what, what they I always said is the three biggest lies I've ever heard were sitting at that table that day. And so, if you, you if you trust that, and you go ahead and borrow the money and sign the contract, you're done. You know, it's a one and done. You'll, you'll sign whatever else they bring you. So, um, as far as, you know, obviously there, you're, you're becoming what, what do we call a, a contract grower. So you, right. you say, you know, I will bring in birds from you. I will raise them on my farm and then I will give them back to you and you get paid based on what? Weight, poundage. Poundage. Okay. So, um, and then you are paying, your expenses include, the the actual you know live birds that come into you that care for them well the time that they're on your farm and then you transport them or someone comes and picks them up for you oh no 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 uh the company owns the birds they act uh, I, I raise seven hundred twenty thousand birds a year without ever owning a chicken okay they, they actually have title to that to that flock they actually bring them they own the feed they they supply that and then they come and pick them up and transport them out. I just, I do everything in between. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the operational expenses of the farm and, you know, any any mortgage uh, associated with that farm, that that's what I take care of. And so when you got started, how many birds were you raising initially, if you can remember, in those first couple batches? Uh, I don't remember exactly. We started with two houses. I now have four. Um, I, 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 you know, it, it really hadn't changed a whole lot. I, I would say 30,000 a house then. And it's basically the same thing now. That That's not really changed a whole lot. And you've been, remind me again, you've been farming with Purdue for how long? Uh, 22 years. Started in August of 1992. So from your end, um, you know, you know, because you sit at the, in this really interesting position of having um, been with the company for a really long time, and I think, for, you know, for most folks, um, the kind of structure around how poultry in particular is produced in this country is something that many of us are just learning about. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you've seen um, kind of stay the same or change over the course of the last 20 years um, as far as, you know, obviously cost increase and, you know, pricing changes, like that goes without saying. But have you noticed any other kind of industry shifts or kind of uh, percentage of like risk or payment shifts that have happened or can you give us a kind of a lay of the land oh sure well i mean that that, that that's a lot of land to cover but just the, the biggest thing to me that has changed is how 
image conscious these companies have become. And the fact is, logistically, the reality of what I do and what I see every day has changed very little. So reality and image are very, very far apart where 20 years ago, you know, I, I didn't feel that way. Um, farmers are, and then they're hurting in this business now. Uh, I mean, we went basically 15 years without a pay increase. Um, you know, if you eat 15 years worth of inflation, I mean, you do the math uh, that there are uh, a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of farms that have been foreclosed on just, just for the simple reason that, you know, that a company made a bad decision and they overproduced and they had to shut plants down. And it's, uh, you know, there's just a lot of people hurting. Now, as far as the chickens itself, Genetically, certainly they've changed a lot. I mean, we can grow a bird a lot bigger, a lot quicker now. Um, yeah, well, I, I think I was maybe a 3.8 pound chicken at 42 days. You know, I can get up four and a half pound chicken at 38 or 39 now, and, and it, it, that varies from company to company, but it, but it's changed that much. Um, but as far as the relationships with the company and communication with the company, when we started, it really wasn't that bad. We kind of felt like we were all learning because everything was new. Now communication, it, it, it doesn't even exist. Uh, you know, I've had several meetings with uh, Purdue on, on the, some of the issues that were brought up in that video, and they come and they meet and they get up and there's never no follow-up. And, you know, that to me is just disrespectful, you know, considering, you know, how integral we, we are to this business. Sure. And in are there so are there other folks kind of in your general area that you kind of, you know, talk shop with who are also producers for Purdue, or are you kind of a one-man show in the region? Oh, no, uh, I'm, I'm the guy everybody's watching, but nobody wants to be seen with it. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, I've got great support down here. And then, and, 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 you know, naturally with the Internet, we got, I've got friends in every state that grow for every major company, poultry company there is, you know, Tyson's, Pilgrim's, Sanderson, and it's all the same story. I mean, and, you know, there's, there's a little tweak here and there to it, but uh, it's, it's, it's basically the same song spinning. So we, we, we've got good support, um, but there's just not a whole lot of us. I think the last count I had was like there's 25,000 farmers who do what I do. It's hard to rattle Sabres, you know, seven, $800,000 in debt, you know, with that few people. <laughs> Sure, sure. So, um, obviously, something's working for you, though, right? Because, I mean, you've been, you know, your farm's still in business. You've been around for 22 years. Um, you know, I, I think folks would assume, like, well, if, if, you know, you had an issue with things, you would just leave or do something different or not work with Purdue anymore. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, you know, how many people get up and go to jobs every day that they don't like? You do what you got to do. You know, because you've got other obligations that are more important. Um, you know, walking away to me is not an option. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wired, you know, if I quit, I fail. I'm in a much better position than most poultry farmers are. I don't have a lot of debt. Yes, I could walk away tomorrow, but uh, why, why should I walk away? Why shouldn't they change? Why shouldn't they be what they say they are? And that's kind of the fight I want to fight and, and see on out to the end. So, uh, to, you know, to me, it sounds a little, uh, I, I would be, if I'm in your shoes, a little bit nervous. Um, I, you know, how do you, you know, how are you working to kind of like protect yourself as you're kind of taking on this public profile around, um, around the issues that you're seeing on the farm and the things that you're looking to kind of advocate for change around? Sure. Um, the, the, the Government Accountability Project in D.C., uh, kind of took me under the wing. 
and they've been great to work with. So as far as that kind of whistleblower type protection, uh, I'm as safe as baby in his mama's arms. I'm, I'm in good hands. <laughs> well, let's kind of let's circle back a little bit to some of the nuts and bolts of the production system on your farm. So obviously, you're not raising you know seven hundred thousand plus birds all at once. So can you give give us a quick run through of the of the the cycle of life from when the chicks hit your farm to when they leave? Oh, sure. It's uh, I have four four barns. Uh, they're forty by five hundred twenty thousand square feet of beef. There's 30,000 chicks delivered each in each house, each flock, which gives me 120,000 every batch. And then we usually turn six times a year, so that's where the 720,000 comes from. Got it. And so you are getting um, kind of your kind of measurement criteria for, for the paycheck that you're getting at the end of those batches is based on total bird weight and total bird number or just straight weight? Oh no, it's a, it's a complicated thing. If you you really uh, that 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 book, the meat racket, um, guy named uh, Christopher Leonard wrote it about Tyson, but it, it it's it you know it rings true with all integrators. It, it's a tournament system, and basically it's a cost system, and it's pounds of chicken versus pounds of feed is what it boils down to. If you can grow a four pound bird with uh, eight pounds of feed, and I can grow a four pound bird with seven pounds of feed, I win that kind of thing. But the thing is, you have no control over the different variables. I mean, you got got 120,000 animals. They're not all going to be genetically identical. I mean, you can have a dog that has five puppies, and they're not going to be all genetically identical. So there's some serious flaws in it, but that's that's the standard of the industry. They can, you know, the ranking system, tournament system, I don't know of anything else. I've heard it called a rig lottery. I think that <laughs> describes it pretty well. Called a what lottery? A rigged lottery. A rigged lottery. Yeah. So, so you know, kind of taking the, you know, and I just want to set this aside for a moment here, taking the, like, financial component out of it, um, sure. you know, w- what are your issues with the system as it stands now? Um, the, the major issue here certainly is disrespect for the farmer and what he uh, brings to this industry because the, the, the capital that this industry has, the farmer with his, the, the buildings he owns, that is half of the capital of this industry. Okay, take into account that collateral he had to put up to buy, uh, uh, take it along for those buildings. Well, I mean, we've got more skin in the game than they do, and yet somehow we are the bottom of the totem pole. It's, um, and then, then the, the, I, I see a lot of hoodwinking of the consumer, and my God, I didn't build this business. The consumer built this business. And if I see that happening, and I don't, say something, then I'm an, ena- I'm an enabler, and, and to me, that's worse than a perpetrator. So that's like, like the two major things, you know, selling something we're not, and, um, and, and just absolutely keep, keeping a farmer on a, a, a treadmill of debt and never seeing any return. I, I'll describe it to you this way. You start climbing a mountain, and you look under your feet, and you realize you're walking up a mountain of BS, and you get to the top. And there's that rose, and you pick that rose off, and you and you go to smell it. Then you've lost your sense of smell, <laughs> and that's that's kind of the way it is. So you tumble down the other side of the mountain, and you look up. And there's another one twice as big. So it's it's just like a never-ending thing. So the promise just never happens. <clears throat> so like looking at the kind of financial and the debt side of things, you know, how does one uh, plan for retirement, um, or you know, your kid's college education, or kind of the next steps in life, or you know, when you are 
you know, looking to not be producing chickens anymore. What What is the game plan? What is the exit strategy? I mean, how does the team at Purdue explain it to folks, or what have you seen around in the industry? Uh, there, there, uh, there is no exit. I mean, they're not, they're not either giving financial advice on this. I mean, they, they, uh, <laughs> they're more than happy to get into your bank account, but they're not going to, uh, you know, we just, you know, I, just, I just did it myself. Uh, you know, there's certainly, you know, self-employed pensions and stuff. I, I don't, I'm not a financial advisor. I mean, I just know what I did for me. And then, of course, my wife teaches school. So we you know we max out her 401k, and, and she's got a pension also. So I mean we're we're good, uh, but you know everybody's just not that fortunate. I wish I could answer that question, but I'm just not a not a financial. Yeah, person. no, and I'm just I'm not asking you to speak for everyone. Just from your experience, yeah. I'm curious like what you've been hearing or what how you guys dealt with it. Yeah, it's, it's it, you know I know people that have to pay their own insurance. They're they're definitely hurting, and they're not even thinking about retirement because. It's hard to take your nose up off the wheel sometimes and see what's better for the long term when you're thinking, my God, i got to get to Friday, you know? Sure, sure. Kind of the, yeah, you know, dealing with the day-to-day. So, well, on the other end of things, and in, in, you're talking about feeling like you're selling consumers on an image of something that you're not. So what does that mean? Well, I mean, if you look at these labels, uh, which is like, I, that's really what brought uh, the lady Leah uh, Garces from Compassion and I together was that label. We were, we were coming down. She was coming down Elm Street and I was coming down Main Street, and that's where we crossed paths. Was that? And it's the USDA, whatever it is. Anyway, it talks about like uh, cage free. Well, there's no meat bird in the United States of America that's ever been raised raised cage free. At least not in my 22 years. So it means nothing. It's industry standards. No hormones or steroids means nothing. That stuff was done away with in the 70s. It's meaningless. Uh, what, what were the other? Humanely race. What does that mean? I mean, that sounds a little subjective. And the funny thing is, they had to remove that from the label through a court decision, but they'll still say that it's humanely raised. I, I saw a, a, a label that they said gluten-free chicken. I, I'm not kidding. I don't even know. I didn't realize that that was an issue, but they, it was on there. Right. Um, oh, golly, what else is on those labels? You know, I just think they should say our chickens have two feet, then we could verify something. So I, I just want to It's clarify. just meaningless. And they're, they're paying, they're preying on consumer trends, and they're not going all in. They're putting a meaningless label on something, trying to convince that consumer that they're getting something better when they're not getting anything more than what's sitting beside it for half price. So I want to just touch on the cage-free thing a little bit more. So in general, you know, birds, so the cage thing is really coming more from the egg-laying industry. That's that's the separate. Yeah, yes, ma'am. That's it. And there, there's that misconception. The steroids came from a misconception for, uh, I think it was the bovine growth hormone they were giving cattle. And it just, it just kind of carried over. And so they, they jumped on it and, you know, made a mint with it. <laughs> So what about when folks are talking about, like, sub-therapeutic antibiotics, where within the animal's feed ration there's kind of low-dose antibiotics? That's not an issue in the poultry industry? Uh, well, it certainly has been. Actually, um, uh, our complex here in Dillon, we are, we are totally antibiotic-free. Now, there has been some growing pains, but certainly that, that, that was what was happening in the past. I mean, and there again, that's just capitalizing on, on a consumer trend. You know, if you didn't, if there was no um, uproar about the, the, the superbugs, 
we would still be doing the same thing we, we, we were doing. There's a lot of the companies are still doing sub therapeutic antibiotics. If you, I think it was the, the guy who did the Reuters thing here about a couple of months ago, whenever they, he, he covered that pretty good, that they'll say, well, we're not using medically important antibiotics in our, in our feed. And then he goes and gets the feed ticket, and the feed ticket is stamped with penicillin. I would say that's kind of medically important. Yeah, I'd say. And it really needs, you know, just just a federal investigation, just, you know, clean it up and, and make it above board. But uh, these guys, they swing a pretty big stick. So one of the other things that you hear um, a lot in kind of popular media around the poultry industry is talking about the genetics of the bird, how the birds have been bred to, you know, have large white breasts and they don't have the kind of skeletal strength to really support support the kind of rate of growth and the volume of growth. And I'm curious, because you've been farming for so long, have you seen a change in kind of the, the rate that the birds will put on weight, but also kind of the overall health of birds? Like, cause you're not really controlling the genetics. It's not like you have, have options there, but in kind of the aggregate, are you seeing that, that shift that people are talking about it or are we just starting to hear about it? Oh no no! We, 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 I've got a front row seat. It's uh, twenty-two years ago. I mean, it, you didn't even think anything about it. And then, I mean, you can just—I mean, you can probably go to the uh, to the National Chicken Clown website or Chick Camp or whatever it is, and they they kind of track that stuff. You know, fifties we were doing this, sixties they were growing this fast. But what what has happened is is I call what what I when I go in there and see at the end of flock now it looks like if you stuck two toothpicks in a grape. That's that's the way I can describe it to you, and that they just the, the birds are designed to do exactly what they're doing: get up, take a bite, take a drink, sit back down. They are that that's that's what they want them to do. And uh, you know, you, 22 years ago, I mean, we had windows, or people call them windows, but they're actually curtains. We rolled up and down. I mean, they got natural air, they got fresh sunlight. I mean, the birds just run up down the house, as they could be. You don't see that anymore. Um, there, there's just not much movement at all. It, it's and it's, it, you know, you think, well, golly, 22 years and a half a pound of chicken, is that a big deal? Well, yeah, if, you, if you're on the front row. And plus, it's certainly a big deal to these companies. Sure. But, well, yeah, you're and, looking but, at you know, percentages at, at there. Watch, you know? Yeah. Ma'am? No, I was just saying, like, if you're if you're looking at kind of the overall weight of a chicken as a percentage, a half pound is a huge jump. Like yeah, if, yeah. If I gained half a pound, no one would notice. Right. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> you probably would. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Not in not in my line of work. <laughs> I can't I, be, hear you. I can't be too sensitive there. So, um so see, I guess the the thing that um, you know, when I consumers are at their grocery store and they're buying a chicken that has some of these labels, you know, the hormone and antibiotic free, cage free, um they have an image of the life of that the, that bird left before it got to that grocery store, or got to their dinner plate. And I'm curious, how big of a jump is it between a, a pasture raised bird and the, the type of uh, growing system that you have? I mean, is that something you could transition to? And, and from a cost perspective as consumers, what should we be like thinking about in, with relation to what is like the real difference between those two types of, um, you know, approaches with regards to producing poultry? Oh, gosh, I, 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 I'm not even qualified to even, even jump on that. I, I mean, it's, it's night and day. That I do know. Is it an option? 
uh, sure, I mean, I've got pastures. That's not a problem. I, I'm, I'm thinking what we're going to have to wind up doing is somewhere in the middle of the road, um, you know, up more. You know, I, th- there's upsides to the facilities. Right. You know, if it's Africa hot, I can keep them cool. And if it's Antarctica cold, I can keep them warm. It's just it, it, it's the stuff that's out of my control that's the issue. And, see, that's the other thing. That's what's got to happen. The farm's got to get control of its own farm. I mean, I, I can't. I mean, maybe there's some out there that like to be told what to do, how to do it, and how many times a day to do it, but I don't know any. And that guy who's making those decisions is a thousand miles away. He doesn't have any affection for this farm or any, any affection for farming, which I do. But that, that that's that's like a key issue. I, I, I Leah could tell you more about the the pasture raised stuff mm-hmm. than I can. I just know the guy makes three bucks a pound, and I make five cents. So it sounds pretty good. <laughs> right. But I, I haven't gone into the uh, to the logistics of it yet. Yeah, no, well, and I think that's the thing when you're looking at kind of your, for consumers, you know, when we're thinking about our values as they relate to food, I think it's not, you know, there are, especially when we're dealing with kind of livestock and poultry, there are animal welfare concerns, but the economic realities of that are are also part of that equation. So I think there is a need uh, from where I sit to to have a middle ground and also to create opportunities for operations like yours to have um, a, a space for transition. Um, sure. And you're not going from like zero to 60, you know, maybe you want to go from zero to 30, but like, how do we, like from our value set, make decisions that are, are kind of rational where everybody is, is being taken care of in that system? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, 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 I mean, you're not going to, you got to heal in the middle road. It's just, it, it's just so polarizing. Um, and, you know, that was a thing that Lee and I tried to hopefully and will continue to show is, you know, we're from two different worlds. Uh, you know, when you see everything out, really we have a lot more in common than we do different. She's seen a lot different perspectives because a lot of times when, like, groups like hers demand things from companies, well, it runs right through the company and triples down to the farmer. And, you know, we, we can't stand anymore. And so she is seeing that now, which is great. And then I see some things from her side, too. But you, we can't forget our mid-sized family farms out here uh, that, that, you know, that are carrying a lot of the weight. It's exciting to see young people come in, and it's exciting to see them go into the small organic stuff. But that's not the only farming that's done in this country. So we've got the support. Of, we've got to, everybody's got to have their uh, share of the pie and their share of the support. So... Was it a hard decision to make the the video with Compassion and World Farming? Uh, it was interesting. To, it just kind of worked out that way. Um, it was we we met like through a mutual colleague, and it just um, we talked on the phone a few times, exchanged a few emails. She came down, and and we sat here at home and talked, and and there was just there was just a connection there, and I can't explain it. So no, it was not hard. To do that, and and I thought with her uh, organization, I'd never heard of that that would have been a good thing, you know. And that, that way, I could kind of control what happened. Nothing leaked out because it had to be a blindside or it didn't work. And uh, so, and then she and I have become good friends since. So it's uh, and I, my, it's my intention to um, you know develop her sense of humor before. <laughs> the next year is out. <laughs> well, so folks who haven't had a chance to check out the video, they can definitely find it on the Compassion and World Farming website as part of their Better Chicken campaign. But kind of the 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 takeaway from the video was, you know, touring the farm, chatting with you, and talking about from an animal welfare standpoint, is this 
the type of chicken we want to be seen produced. And so I'm wondering what's been the feedback from folks um, within the industry and outside of the industry? Um, are 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 you getting you know slaps on the back or you know punches in the gut or what's the what's the kind of feedback been uh, after the video went live? Well, naturally the industry punched me in the gut, but uh, you know the. The lob- the lobbyist and the in the general industry rags and that kind of stuff. It was a farmer's fault, blah blah blah. What they did, they what they didn't do, they failed to not check my record, which I'm well above average in their tournament scheme. That flock finished second place out of nine or ten farms or whatever. So you know that kind of stuff doesn't really worry me because you know those opinions are bought and paid for. They wouldn't know the truth. It was a steel toe boot to kick them in the teeth. The only thing I'm worried about is the farming community supporting me, and so far so good. Not all of them, naturally, but most. Um, that, that's you know, they say if you got uh, you get three farmers to agree on something and, and sit them in a room, you have to shoot two of them. <laughs> We're kind of independent, and hard-headed, but I've gotten really good support. So, and that's the only thing I can. I'm my peers, and that's all I'm worried about. Sure, sure. Well, and I'm I am hopeful, honestly, if there's folks from. The Purdue team out there listening would love to have them on the show as well to talk about the operation more, more generally. Um, you know, because I think like that is the the way we take steps in a direction that we're all feeling better about is increasing that transparency in the food supply. So, Craig, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. It's been really interesting getting a chance to connect with you. Okay. Um, for folks who want to learn more about Craig and his work, definitely check out the video. But you can also find him on Twitter. He is at Craig with a C. Uh, WCA Farms 92 uh, for his thoughts and uh, lots of jokes there. Uh, definitely check him out. Hang tight. Um, in the second half of the show, we are being on the line with Sam Filler, the Director of Industry Development, uh, talking a little bit about beer and brewing in New York State. So hold on. We'll be right back.
Network is a proud media partner of Food and Enterprise. Founded in 2013, Food and Enterprise is a social impact, mission-driven event dedicated to promoting understanding and collaboration amongst multiple stakeholders, farmers, entrepreneurs, consultants, funders, and investors who aim to finance a better local food system. After two years hosted under the auspices of the Food Book Fair, the 2015 conference has grown to be a three-day event, beginning with a popular entrepreneurship clinic and ending with a third annual pitch completion. The 2015 Food and Enterprise Conference is organized and administered by the Northeast Food Shed Finance Alliance and Slow Money New York City in conjunction with the NRDC, Community Food Funders, and the Young Farmers Alliance. This is all taking place February 27th through March 1st at Summit at Industry City in Brooklyn, New York. For more information, visit www.foodandenterprise.com. Hello out there, it's Steve Jenkins, I'm with Fairway Markets, White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro, well these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming you would have, and at Heritage Foods USA you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's Heritage Turkey, Japanese Steaks, Berkshire Pork, or Navajo Churro Lamb Chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more information. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. All right, we are back and joined on the line by Sam Filler, the Director of Industry Development, working with Cuomo's office. Um, Sam, thanks for taking some time to join us. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk a little bit today um, about your upcoming um, panel with Food and Enterprise, uh, which we heard a little bit about during the break. But you're going to be looking at a panel called Anatomy of a Deal, um, focused on the New York State uh, brewers and brewer community, moderated by Jennifer Grossman over at the NRDC. So can you talk a little bit about you know, why the governor's interest, why the focus on New York State beverages? What is, uh, what's the word there? Well, I think um, his focus on the craft beverage industry uh, has to do with the fact that it hits on a lot of aspects of our state's economy. Uh, you know, new breweries that open up create jobs. They buy raw agricultural products from our state farms, so you're supporting farm labor and our, and our great farms in, in upstate New York and in Long Island. Um, and then also uh, these businesses help generate tourism, and so many of our breweries are along wine trails or they form their own trails. And so it's, it's really uh, – there's a lot of benefits to supporting this industry. Uh, most of all, they make really great products. So kind of in, in your role overseeing this work, uh, do you get to drink a lot of good beer and cider? I do get to uh, do a lot of tastings on behalf of the governor to make sure uh, they represent the best quality in New York State. 
<laughs> so give us some highlights. Um, what are you anticipating the conversation to look like as part of the uh, Anatomy of a Deal panel with the Food and Enterprise um, Conference? You know, through my work going across the state and meeting with uh, the brewing industry, there's a lot of concerns about uh, procuring um, the raw materials from New York State. We only recently uh, have started reinvesting in our hops industry, and we started to put more focus on uh, helping farmers grow uh, malt barley that's of a quality that brewers like. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that's a big part of uh, the concern of brewers across the state is how are they going to get a quality product at a reasonable pro- reasonable price that, you know, is, is going to help them remain competitive and make a great product. Yeah, it's funny. I did a... Um, a, a couple of shows about two years ago looking at beer as an agriculture product, which is like, for me, was like totally belated glimpse of the obvious because it's hops, you know, it's the grain and it's water and that's pretty much it. But I feel like there is a little bit of a disconnect uh, when you're like out at the pub getting a pint that, you know, this this product actually was kind of grown and stewarded by someone. But usually those relationships are separate. The farmers and and the brewers and then the distributors. So I I think too, like there's you must be talking to a lot of different parties and the kind of coordination and communication must be a big part of what's challenging about this work. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that are you know the governor uh, signed the Farm Brewery Act or the Farm Brewery Law that created this uh, new license that encourages brewers to use New York State sourced ingredients. Uh, you know, so there's there's farm breweries out there that are growing their own hops. Uh, there's some that there's a great example farmhouse malt in Newark Valley. They are a malt house, a farm brewery, and a and and they have a really great tasting room. So, and then you you have uh, big brewers like uh, FX Matt that makes the Serenic line of beers, or even Brooklyn Brewery that they're not necessarily farm breweries, but they're establishing relationships with the agricultural community in New York State, so they can also make a New York State focused uh, beer as part of their lineup. And how do you, like, one of the things I always find so interesting when you have um, a business or a state agency get involved in, um, you know, agriculture production, especially when you're looking at, uh, you know, transition opportunities where farmers might be looking to, you know, grow a new crop or the production line might include some value-added needs. So in the case of brewing, we're looking at malt houses. Um, and, and when you're sitting down kind of in my head, you're in your like magical kind of brainstorming session, trying to figure out like what's the right timeline, what's the right percentage, how do we invent, incentivize this correctly? How do you kind of put together the teams of advisors and, and the people to help make sure that you and the government's team are making the right decisions that are kind of in line with appropriate kind of timelines and, and the reality of the, of the craft beverage industry? Well, it's funny that you bring that up because on Monday we're having our second meeting of uh, the Governor Governor Cuomo's uh, craft beer working group that's comprised of, uh, you know, prominent brewers from across the state, uh, some of our malt houses, Cornell researchers, uh, and other professionals in the field. Uh, this was announced, I think, June or July of last year, and we had a meeting over the summer. So, you know, we're consistently in dialogue with the industry. I, I work very closely with the State Liquor Authority and uh, the Department of Ag and Markets. And, you know, we're aware of the challenges that exist out there to, you know, make all these connections happening, make sure that we're 
uh, implementing the right policies that are responsive to the industry and what they need. And, and I think that's why you've seen, um, you know, uh, in November, the governor signed the Craft New York Act, which helped liberalize more of the state liquor laws. And, you know, one big benefit has been uh, that anyone who's a farm licensee in the state, including wineries, cideries, and uh, breweries, and, and also distilleries can now sell by the glass from their tasting room, which is, has been a, you know, huge boon for the industry. So can you give us a little sense, just in broad strokes, of kind of the history around the craft um, beverage space in New York? Um, obviously, this is something that I think we here at the station have been hearing quite a bit about in the last couple of years. But was there kind of a, a turning point or a moment where, um, you know, the team was kind of like, oh, this is something that like we should be paying more attention to and really investing in because it's something unique to New York I, you know, I think it's uh, uh, a couple factors. Um, you know, I, uh, the Cuomo family has a history of supporting the craft beverage industry. Uh, Governor Cuomo's father helped create the New York Wine and Grape Foundation in 1985, uh, which helped uh, helped our um, you know grape industry recover and, and our wine industry start to grow. And and I think. Uh, that Governor Cuomo recognizes the, a similar benefit to, as I mentioned earlier, that when you invest in this value-added industry, there's uh, tertiary benefits to our ag industry, our tourism industry, and, you know, even, you know, we have some great um, machinery producers that are producing the tanks and the, the um, you know, various equipment that, that our brewers need to produce their product. Um, so, you know, it, it, just to give you a quick timeline, in 1976, uh, the Farm Winery Act was created, and that's what uh, allowed us to have more of these small, uh, family-sized wineries become established. Then the Wine and Grape Foundation was established in 1985, and that helped give even more energy to the industry. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, Governor Cuomo has now created a farm brewery license, a farm cidery license, and, and I think, you know, that really... It's tapping into that legacy that we have as a state in, in promoting craft beverages, but also, you know, I think uh, at, at this time in history, obviously buying local, uh, locally sourced products are, you know, what's popular, and, and, and consumers are really focused on knowing more about where their product comes from, and that's why there's a really great interest in craft products because they're of a very high quality, but also there's a, a personal touch to them. You can establish a relationship with the owner of that brewery and get to know them and get to know their product and, and be a participant in, in, in their you know future things that they're developing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's something definitely we've been following here at the station for quite some time. We've got the, you know, Jimmy Carbone, who hosts Beer Sessions Radio, following the craft beer movement. Um, I think they're coming up on their fifth year of programming. We have been, like, longtime sponsors, uh, media sponsors of the New York City Cider Week. So it's, like, it's yep. nice to see, um, you know, so many different people coming to the table. And as consumers, kind of frontline consumers, folks down here, in the city, I think, you know, one of the main things we can be doing is, you know, asking our, our waiters and bartenders where our beer is coming from and, and using that moment to buy New York State. But you guys are also doing some support for uh, for folks to kind of get the word out. I know you announced some, some funds um, around marketing and promotion and agritourism or industry tourism. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. So, um uh, Governor Cuomo has now hosted two beer, wine, spirits, and cider summits. 
uh, to really highlight and bring attention to the industry. And, and part of the, the last summit that was hosted in April of 2014, he announced a $4 million commitment to the industry. And that $4 million breaks down into a $1 million uh, for advertising, uh, a $2 million marketing match grant program, and a $1 million tourism promotion grant program. Uh, the $1 million in advertising has been split evenly among the four beverage sectors. So we're, so I'm working directly with the uh, trade associations for beer, wine, spirits, and cider to help them better market themselves and, and, and uh, really tell the story about what makes New York State-produced products of high excellence. And so, uh, you know, I know New York City Beer Week is coming up. We're going to have some exciting uh, initiatives launched in, in line with uh, New York City Beer Week, and um, so stay tuned to that. And we're uh, we're helping the Distillers Association launch a new website. So that's the advertising money. The marketing, $2 million marketing match money, essentially the idea is uh, for every dollar that is spent on marketing activities, the state will match it with a dollar. Um, a good example of this is... Uh, is, is the New York City Beer Week. So, um, you know, because we have this, this uh, grant money available, the, the brewing industry has been able to purchase some more uh, marketing and advertising uh, materials and, and, you know, advertise on radio and in print. So we're helping and supporting them to do that. And then the last, the uh, tourism promotion money is really, you know, you think about the wine trails across the state. You know, some of them, they need to invest in, uh, radio advertisements or signage on their trails. So this is money that's, you know, put aside for that. So, uh, you know, there's a great initiative in the Adirondacks called the Adirondack Craft Beverage Trail, and, and they're the type of group that we would look to help support with this money. That's awesome. Sam, thank you so much for, for joining us. And I have to shout a peep out there. If folks are looking to advertise on radio, please think of the Heritage Radio Network. We would love to be and continue to be a, a part of that work. But it's been really great to get a little bit of the background and the details and look forward to seeing you uh, later in the month at Food and Enterprise. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So, folks, if you want to find out more um, about the upcoming Food and Enterprise Conference, definitely check them out, www.foodandenterprise.com. want to send a big thanks to my guests, Sam Filler and Craig Watts, for another great episode of The Farm Report. Uh, shout out to Liz Smith, who's engineering for me over there in the booth. want to let you know that this show, like all 39 of our weekly programs, is available for free. Definitely visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.com. Dot org. You can peruse all, t- all kinds of great shows every week. Uh, we are a member-supported nonprofit, so if you believe in our work, please consider clicking that Donate tab and becoming a member today. Also, check us out um, on iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. You can subscribe to the show. It'll get delivered to your iPhone or Android or phone of choice or computer of choice every week, uh, fresh and ready to go for you. Thanks so much for tuning in, and keep on listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.